0: So, Jesus, what is it that you mean when you say that you are the bread of life? That is abstract for us. So, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, somehow through what I say, through the things we're going to think in these next few minutes, help us to know what that means and how we live it out. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to welcome all of you as well as those of you who are watching the podcast. It's great to have all of you with us. The scripture that Dana just read actually raises one of life's most important questions. Now, I don't think we think of it as one of life's most important questions. In fact, you may have never even asked it of yourself at all, but it's this. What do you hunger for in life? And by that I don't mean food, so don't be thinking, hmm, cinnamon roll would be good. <laughs> Although I would. But, but in life, what do you hunger for? Is it, is it admiration? Financial security, success, health, sex, what do you hunger for? And there are two reasons this is such an important question. And the first is this, it's about revival. Here at Bell Press we say that we exist to partner with Jesus as he revives us, the east side, marriages, families, people out of poverty. But do you know where revival starts? Revival starts when we hunger for Jesus more than anything else, and that is challenging because I don't know about you, but I hunger for lots of things, but do we hunger for Jesus? Second reason this is an important question is is that what you hunger for is what you'll pursue and probably get. Often we get what we hunger for, and that raises the question, does it satisfy? Does it bring lasting joy? In the words of the talking heads, watch out, you might get what you're after. Does it actually satisfy us? When I was a kid, my grandparents were farmers, and one of the things they raised was cattle. And it was a great experience to have farmers for grandparents, and you know, one of the things my siblings and I did was we would sometimes name the cows. Big mistake. Because then you know, my grandfather would slaughter them every fall and sell the meat to us for really cheap, and so sometimes as we'd be biting into the hamburger, we'd be sobbing, was this brownie? Right, so bad idea. And since we were living on just a teacher's salary, this was the cheapest meat that we could get. So we had tons of it all the time. I can actually remember saying things like, filet mignon again, ugh. Now bear in mind, this was grass-fed, local, no hormones. What in today's market might be a $50 cut of beef. And there I was going, man, can't we have salmon loaf? You know, because you have not lived until you have had salmon loaf with canned salmon, Mm-mm, good, tasty, tasty. That, that's, that's just how we roll in eastern Washington, right? Where, eastern, where salmon is a vegetable over there and sushi is called by its proper name, bait. So here's my point, okay? I was eating really good... Got it? I was eating really good food, really good-tasting food. And there I was hungering for something that wasn't nearly as good tasting or as nourishing. You get the metaphor. Our culture teaches us to hunger for things that aren't all that nourishing and actually don't even taste good. We've just been convinced they do. Achievement, accolades, good looks, multiple sexual partners. We are a culture of appetites. And we have a media and an economy that actually depends on you never being satisfied. There are many people working hard to make sure that you never feel satisfied because the minute you feel satisfied, Madison Avenue is out of work. And some of the things we hunger for are not bad. They're actually good things. They just aren't filling. And they don't taste as good as what Jesus offers. And that's why Jesus says this kind of cryptic statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Now, like all of Jesus' I am statements that we're looking at this summer, it, these are hard for us to connect with in our culture. All of them are. But, you know, back then, when folks often did not know where their next meal was coming from, bread of life, that would have been a very powerful statement. It meant a lot. And the audacious claim that Jesus is making here is he's saying, I am the source of ultimate joy, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate, ultimate wholeness in life. Not what I can do for you, not what I can give you, I myself am the source of all joy. And notice what he says, and this is important. I want you to, If you hear nothing else, hear this and the canned salmon remark, okay? <laughs> hear this. He, notice what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. He doesn't say, I have the bread of life. And here's why that is so important, because I think many of us, myself included, approach Jesus as though he has the bread of life, a great moral teacher, or more precisely, hey, Jesus, you can help me get the things that I want in my life. You have the bread of life. That's why he says to the crowd in, in, in this passage, you are looking for me because you, are, you ate, ate the loaves and had your fill. What he's getting at is just before this story, he miraculously fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. So he's basically saying, you're following me because you see me as the dispenser of the goodies that you want. And I know that's true of me and maybe of you. We want Jesus to fix our lives the way we think he should fix our lives. Jesus, help my career, help my finances, my relationships, give me a better job, heal me, fix me, help me, bless me. You aren't the bread, Jesus, but you have the bread, so lay it on me. There's a Korean man who used to go to this church before he moved. And he said growing up, his mom was really into prosperity gospel. You know, Jesus wants to give us health and wealth and success and all of that. And she would always say to him, dream big dreams and God will bless you. And he said he hated it because it just felt like tiger mom in Christian disguise. That is a great phrase. And it is so descriptive of American Christianity. Tiger mom in Christian disguise. Now, prosperity gospel gets it half right. We, God wants to bless us. The half it gets wrong is by identifying those blessings with what American culture calls a blessing. God's blessings may be harder, but deeper and richer and better. And Jesus does care about the realities of our life, about our finances, health, all of that. And I'll get to that in a minute. But what he's getting at is those things ultimately do not bring lasting satisfaction. Once we get bread, we just want cake and ice cream too. I heard a supermodel on the radio this week and she said she makes millions of dollars, travels to all these cool places, but she said she's also super anxious and super insecure. Every pound is cause for worry. She's constantly, should my thighs be thinner or this or that or the other thing? And she said, I feel awkward saying that because on the one hand, I am the beneficiary of a deck that was stacked incredibly in my favor simply because I won the genetic lottery through absolutely no merit of my own. But I'm also just as insecure, just as fearful, maybe even more so, as everyone else. It doesn't satisfy. That's why Jesus says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will give you. In other words, Jesus is saying, Your problem is not that you're hungry, it's that you're not hungry enough. You settle for junk soul food that doesn't last rather than things that lead to lasting joy. And those things are connection with Jesus, connection with other people in a meaningful way, meaning and purpose beyond ourself. And this is where Jesus is different than all the other religious figures. Every other religious figure there is says desire is bad or Buddha, desire is the mother of all suffering. So get rid of it. Jesus says, no, desire more, hunger for those things that last Because behind your hunger for accolades is a hunger of love and acceptance that really can only be found by connecting with the one who made you. Behind your hunger for sex is also a hunger for transcendence, something that takes you into something bigger than yourself, which can be found by connecting with the God of the universe. Your hunger for success and money, those things that you hunger for, they can buy you a house but not a home, a bed but not rest, influence but not real community. Jesus says, ultimate satisfaction is found not when I give you all the things you want. Those are just idols. Ultimate satisfaction is not when I give you every idol you want. What Ultimate satisfaction is when you connect with me. Let me give you an example. When I was a college pastor in my former church, there was a small group of people, I don't know, 20 or so, who at one point started to spread a lot of kind of untrue stories about me, things that I supposedly said and did that I never had. I'm always amazed at what I've said, apparently. Uh, And it just wasn't true, um, including that I might be trying to turn the college group into a cult and that I was a cult leader. Oh, please. I'm Presbyterian. I'm not nearly that interesting or that creative. And it was painful because one of my idols, big one, one of the things I hunger for is accolades. And I prayed about it, prayed about it, didn't help. But then one day as I was praying out of the blue, I got this picture of Jesus on the cross in pain. And then the thought popped into my head, you know, they lied about me too. And when I was on the cross, I saw the ways they were sinning against you. I saw what they're doing to you, and I paid the price for their sins. And I know that this hurts, and I am your pain bearer. Now, did that fix the gossip? Not a bit. They just kept chattering away but suddenly it didn't matter as much. I felt loved. He didn't fix the problem, but his presence took away the problem's sting. Now, it is true that sometimes Jesus does some kind of miracle, And fixes some problem in our lives. And I don't know how he decides when he does what miracles. I don't know. I just know they're rare. But they were rare in the Bible, too. And as I've told you before, if you divide all the miracles in the Bible by the 2,000 years of history that it covers, by the number of square miles it all happens in, you come out with very few miracles per square mile per decade. They were rare then, too. For a good reason. They never convinced anyone in anything. Israelites, they see the Red Sea part. A day later, where's the water? Where's the bread? We're hungry, right? Doesn't help. Didn't help them a bit, right? And it never helped anyone actually follow Jesus. All it did was make them look at him as a vending machine, and they just wanted more stuff. But Jesus promises his presence, and his presence can satisfy. And I know that out there, because you have told me, You've experienced this. You have experienced some of the worst tragedies imaginable and yet have said, but in it I found God's presence in a way I never had before and that gave me hope and confidence and strength. And he has used those things for good things and brought good things out of it. The point of this life is to prepare us for forever And God uses the losses we face in this life to pry our hands one finger at a time off of the things of this world so that we learn to hang on to him and him alone because everything else will fail us. Because even if we get the miracle, we'll still face future trials. But if we learn to depend on him and him alone for our, our joy and our strength and our peace, that can never be taken away. And that's what this life is all about. It's called revival. And it starts when we hunger for him more than anything else. And then we begin to live the eternal kind of life. Not for some day when we die out there. Some, no, the eternal kind of life right here, right now in our real world. That's what Jesus means when he gets at this very shocking thing that he says in this passage. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. In the Greek, it is even worse. In the Greek, it is literally, unless you are chomping, if you are chomping down and gobbling up my flesh and blood. Gross! Right? Like it is just shocking and it is shocking in part because it is so insistently physical and that's the point now he's obviously referring to communion and communion is not just some ritual we go through to kind of fill out the church service I once heard someone say communion is so that if the sermon is lousy at least you have something to look forward to in church that day kind of insulting right? I don't know maybe that's why some folks decided that in our 11 o'clock modern and 6 o'clock services we should have it every week I don't know A deeper reason for communion is that Jesus left us a physical sign. He didn't say meditate in remembrance of me, though that's good. He said eat this, drink that. It is insistently physical. And his point is he comes to impact the real world right here, right now, the tangible stuff of our lives. He's not so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. The word became flesh, and ever since we preachers have been trying to turn it back into words again, Jesus resists. He comes to give us the eternal kind of life here and now. It's not just spiritual talk. But it starts when we hunger for Jesus more than anything else. Okay, so if that's true, and it is, then in a culture that teaches us to hunger for everything except Jesus, how do we learn to hunger for Jesus? A couple of things, and most of these have to be done daily. He is our daily bread. And the first is this. Recognize the empty calories you're taking in. Ask Jesus to show you what you hunger for and then ask in prayer, is this actually satisfying me or do I just want more? Step number two, taste the real thing that Jesus is. Let me use an analogy. My wife is really into healthy food, you know, fresh, local, all of that stuff, much of which, by the way, can be found at the Bellevue's farmer market, started by a woman in this church and meets in our parking lot on Thursdays. Just saying. And healthy food is good, although occasionally our kids haven't been too sure, like the time she served us kelp. Kids didn't like that. That was weird. And whole wheat cookies, they didn't go over so well, but mostly it's a good thing. And when it comes to dessert, one of our kind of mantras is, if it's not homemade, it's not worth the calories. And after years of that, the result is I actually don't really like store-bought dessert. I mean, it's loaded with preservatives. It just doesn't taste good. I can walk right by any store-bought dessert without a flicker of temptation. I can eat dozens of homemade cookies in a sitting. I mean, dozens at a time, as long as they don't have whole wheat. I Tons of them. But store-bought, it doesn't even... It's just they don't taste good. Here's the point. When you taste the real for long enough, the junk food stops tasting good to you after a while because it actually doesn't. So the more you invest in the things that actually satisfy, connection with Jesus found in worship, prayer, scripture, community... Authentic connection with others, not where we hide our problems, but where we're actually honest. Meaning and purpose beyond ourselves. Taste those things long enough and the stuff our culture tells you to want will not be appealing and you'll hunger for Jesus more. Third step, fast. And not just from food, though that too, but busyness, media. Because here's the thing, part of why we don't hunger for Jesus is we're just so filled up with other stuff. We're just full of it. That's the problem. So filled with other stuff, there's no space to connect with Jesus, experience his presence. Plus, there's something just supernatural that happens when we fast. I can't even explain it, but it just takes you to this different spiritual place. Recognize the empty calories, taste the real, fast, and then finally double down on Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. After this hard teaching, it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Maybe because they figured out he wasn't going to give them everything they wanted. You know, it's interesting, just as an aside, it's interesting, whenever Jesus is presented honestly, folks leave churches. Churches. I find that interesting. And often revival starts when folks start leaving churches. I mean, when you get rid of all the religious folks just in it for the rules and the rituals and get rid of all the folks who are just there to see what Jesus can give them and you're left with just the people who actually just hunger for the real Jesus, what do you know? Revival breaks out. So I don't know. Maybe we, maybe we should, should not be praying for additions to our church, but as Charles Wesley said, a host of blessed subtractions. Present company excluded, obviously. But if I am honest, I am like these crowds. When Jesus doesn't give me what I want, I can get really pouty, just ask my wife. Why isn't he helping? Well, who says that he isn't? He never promised an easy life. He promised to be with us in a way that sustains and to use hard things for good times. And his working in my life is not dependent on me noticing it or approving of it. Who says he's not helping? So then after everybody leaves, Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And then Peter says one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. So beautiful. Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. He doubles down on Jesus. He says, Lord, we have tested the alternatives. The eternal kind of life is found in you and you alone. You are my plan A, Lord, and I do not have a plan B. And it's so true. Look at the alternatives. Meaning of life. Secular culture says it's to be happy. Wow, aim high. Jesus says it's to be whole, out of which comes indestructible joy, and to be part of his rescue mission, out of which comes meaning and purpose. Take suffering. Why do bad, horrible things happen? Atheism says, well, they just do, and you're alone in a cold, indifferent universe, and there's no right or wrong to it. It's just nature. Every other religion says it's because you did something bad, either in this life or a past life. But Jesus says three things. I am with you in a way that will bring comfort and I know how it feels. Before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Lord, take this cup from me. That prayer went went unanswered. Even Jesus doesn't get every miracle he asks for. And every other God and every other religion exempts themselves from the suffering of this world. But Jesus says, no, I'll play by the same set of rules they do. I am with you in it. Second thing he says is I'll bring redemption and good things out of it. It may take a lot of time, But just like I turned a cross into an empty grave, I can use this for good. And the third thing he says is someday I will put a stop to it all and bring a new heaven and a new earth where all this pain goes away. It does not answer every question. But it's the best response there is. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. So when things don't go your way, pray this prayer. Jesus, in this hard time, what are you doing? I got laid off. I've got cancer. The loved one died. What are you doing in the middle of this? Help me to see it. It's a hard prayer to pray. I have a hard time praying it. But as you pray, you begin to see how he's actually there. The words of one of the songs we sing in this service, we sang it last week, I would recommend it to you as a beautiful prayer. When I don't understand, I will choose you, God. When I don't understand, I will choose to love you, Lord, and wait for your redemptive purposes to unfold. And as we do that, over time because this takes time we discover two things that we are all he wants and he is all we need total satisfaction let me give you an example i have a single friend in his late twenties who really likes to dance i don't understand that i have counseled him about it i've tried to cast the demon out of him but he really likes to dance. And he's single. And about a year ago, he was at a club to dance. And for him, that is not a place of temptation. And at one point, two women started really hitting on him. And he gently let him know that he would dance with him, but he wasn't interested in anything else. Well, then the guy next to him said, hey, home run, man, you're going to score tonight. And then he said, can I buy you a drink? And my friend said, I'm just drinking water no thanks. And the guy said, okay, you don't want to sleep with those women and you don't drink. Are you religious or something? And my friend said, well, I'm a Christian, if that's what you mean. And I'm only interested in sleeping with one woman for the rest of my life. And I don't want to carry in baggage from other encounters because I want a great sex life with my future wife. So I am not interested in what they offer. I think God has better. And then the guy next to him in a moment of amazing honesty said, actually, I feel the same way i just wish i could do it like you're doing it and at first when i started clubbing it was exciting and it was fun but now it just feels hollow and lonely and it really isn't very much fun at all well eventually that guy left and my friend did some other stuff and then another woman came and sat down next to my friend and she said can i talk to you you're the only one in this place that isn't drunk and doesn't have bad breath (laughs) and my friend had a great time that night talking to all kinds of people enjoying himself and yes dancing go figure let me ask you a question. Who's living the abundant life in that story and who isn't? See, what our culture tells us is the good life isn't all that good, and what our culture says tastes great actually doesn't. My friend is feasting on Jesus and his eternal kind of life, and he's actually happier. So this week, ask Jesus to show you what you hunger for. And then taste the real thing, maybe by connecting with him, prayer, worship, scripture, or being part of something bigger than yourself by helping someone uh, in your office or neighborhood or home or whatever it is. And then one other thing, because of the pressure of our culture, we cannot do this alone. So find a community, find some folks who can help you hunger for Jesus more than anything else and show you practical ways how you can do that. See, Jesus is calling you And he's calling me. And he says, what are you chasing? And does it satisfy? You're not bad. You're hungry. And I am the bread of life. So as the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you will discover two things, that we are all that he wants. And he is all that we need. So Jesus, hard teaching. I confess I don't do this very well at all. And I hunger for so many things, and I want you to give me all those things. But Jesus, I know those are idols, so take them out of my hands. Help us all to hunger for you and you alone and find our rest, find our hope, find our peace, find our joy, find our life in only you. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen.